Hi, welcome to Glam City. This is our second season and we are so excited to be back in the chair. My name is Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. And here we are lifting the curtain on Sydney's cultural institutions. We are taking you behind the scenes to talk about what's on across Sydney. We will be bringing you at least 10 historical lollipops this season yes, for you so to enjoy. Get ready for that. And today we've gone meta because, uh, you know, GLAM is a bit of a strange acronym. It stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums, which you might associate with Dusty Archives, but we think they're pretty fun. And today we've got on the show um, Distinguished Professor Peter McNeil. Who studies, literally, glamour. (laughs) How do you like that for a byline, Peter? (laughs) It's a good occupation. (laughs) If you can get it. Peter has been researching gay and queer history over a nearly 30-year period across a wide range of topics from interior design to fashion history. He's a self-described interdisciplinary cultural historian, interested in bits that often get away. He's also a distinguished professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. He's written heaps about fashion journalism, history of sandals, Japanese art deco. He's looked at exhibitions, and his forthcoming book is on 18th century men's fashion called Pretty Gentlemen, Macaroni Men in the 18th Century Fashion World. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Your CV on uh, fashion and queer history is extraordinary. What got you into this area? Well, I was really always interested in design and decorative arts when I was young, and you couldn't actually study that if you didn't want to be a designer per se. I was interested in the cultural dimension. So I did art history degrees, and they turned out to be all about paintings. But I'd go in and ask to write a different essay. They'd let me. I always wrote about design topics did a great course about fashion history with Margaret Maynard, one of our first pioneers in this area. And then I did a master's thesis because I wanted a bit of time out from my difficult toil at ANU. <laughs> and I ended up writing a, a thesis called Designing Women, which was about Sydney interior design in the 30s. Of course, there's a lot of clothes in those images from the 30s of interiors, ads, that kind of thing. And in the process of doing that work, I also discovered that this was a really interesting queer space because the first named interior designer in the country was a queer woman, probably. And women worked in this area partly because it was a safe space where they could work and also keep their respectability. My next step was, um, how can I get out of Canberra, much as I love it? <laughs> so I, I went to University of Sydney and I proposed to do a topic called Dress and Gender. A little bit broad for these days. Might Those so. days was okay. It was, it was an, an emerging field. There was no field. internet then, it was fine. <laughs> emerging field, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to write about Oscar Wilde in the late 19th century. Then I decided, no, the 19th century, no. I'll, I'll push back and discovered these guys called macaronis who were kind of fops of the late 18th century. So not men that, made out of pasta? No. And I looked at portrait painting, caricatures, the relationship between high and low. That's one thing I'm very interested in, high and low, the everyday versus the really? elite, the way they rub up against each other creatively. And all those guys are wearing clothes, they're wearing fashion, and that's, that's what led mm. to the strong fashion route. And a lot of your fashion history, I mean, it has literally such a huge spread from the 20th century back into, like you say, the 1700s, the 18th century. Is there a link, a common thread throughout those eras that draws you across such um, diverse spreads of time? Yes, because, um, you know, with the cultural turn in the last 30 years or so, people are interested in, you know, um, identity, uh, what um, material objects mean in people's lives across time. This public-private thing has always interested me. That's why I've done a bit of research about 
uh, Mardi Gras dress and also queer dress in Australia, um, about oppositional practices. And I guess when I was young, like most young people, I was extremely interested in subculture and the really great writing about fashion was often about subculture. So my 18th century work, they're kind of nascent subcultural styles as well, oppositional Mm. So you just sort of talked about the cultural turn then, and you're often labelled a fashion historian, but you prefer this term an interdisciplinary cultural historian. Tell, tell us why. Yeah, well, some dress history is very linear and uh, just about um, stylistics. And for me, that's not good enough. It has to be more about what did the stuff mean to people at the time. And that's often very hard to find out about the deep past, even the recent past unless you can interview people from that period. So even if we're talking about the 1930s, it's hard to find out mm. what things actually meant to people. So how do you but get you at it? you can do it. Yeah. Well, you start the digging. It's like archaeology. I like working across all these different formats, uh, photographs, images, diaries, memoirs, traces. And it's off, that's why you've got to go into the archive and the museum. It's often the pencil trace in the border of a print or, a, or an image that actually gives you a clue and, and leads you on another mm. pathway. And do you, do you feel like you, you, you've described that you're looking for the, the bits of history that get away? Do you find that you've had to develop a sort of, I don't know, a, a, like a fashion lens or a new lens to read some of those cultural artefacts in order to, or, or read some of those fashion artefacts to, to sort of get behind the story? Yeah, well, I've tried to be... I've tried to be very open. And there's also been a bit of distinction in that field about, you know, working with texts and working with theories and working with objects. So I'm very lucky to have um, met this, one of the world's greatest collectors of fashion, who's actually coming to Sydney in, in a few weeks in, in May for a great exhibition opening. And I spent ages in his house. Well, he's a very lucky man. He has a, had a house in London, Switzerland, and New York. So you got to stay in all these houses. And they're full of all this museum-quality stuff that now forms major collections around the world. And he'd talk you through what the kind of materiality of the stuff meant, which we, of course, can't do very easily because we've got to go into the museum, we have to make an appointment, we have to ask to see it, and sometimes we can't touch it. So there's that kind of level. And I also always like theory as well. And I always get irritated when people talk about a kind of divide between materiality and the theoretical. So... I think if you if you can't kind of put things to together, also biography, you know, critical biography, uh, cultural history. I kind of like the French tradition very much, where they kind of come in. Like you might have someone like Roche, who is one of the greatest writers on dress, but he actually studied medieval shields or something like that. You know, heraldry. They come in in an interesting way. History of colors. What does color green mean to somebody a hundred years ago? It doesn't mean what it means to us today. Mm. The early monists are always like 10 years ahead of the rest of us, yeah, aren't they? they always are. <laughs> yeah. They're the lateral thinkers. Totally. And in some ways, do you think it's because they're working with a sort of archive that's quite different than what the 20th century archive looks like? It could well be that they're often working about, you know, gaps and absences. And whenever people say to me, oh, there's nothing written about X, I always think, no, it's not true. There's always something. But it's, you know, it might be very hard to find. And then it's the way you map it together. Mm. Yeah. It's also interesting, um, I partly did that 18th century topic about 18th century men, these wonderful fleshy macaronis, because um, I actually wanted to live in Europe for a while. And before digitization, we had to go to the British Library and the British Museum and the Bibliothèque Nationale and queue up in winter and be really miserable and suffer. But that was great, actually, because you actually handled the real prints. And in some cases, they had things written on them that, that might be cropped in reproduction. Words often re removed from prints 
You know, it's the text and image mm. interacting where you often pick up a lot of cues. And I actually discovered that part of the printed catalogue of the big collection of 18th century British political prints had the queer um, aspects had in part been censored in the 19th century. They actually remove pieces of text. As far as I know, it's some of the only cases where they actually cut out the text from some of the prints that were overtly, let's call it sodomitical or queer. Wow. Gay, so, gay wouldn't be the right word. This you know, is, whether um, there's a gay 18th century or not is a, is a big topic. Oh, right. But there's well, definitely a queer 18th century. <laughs> Great. I mean, Peter keeps dangling these little carrots, and we are going to come to the macaroni man at the end. So it's these are teasers. These are teasers. Um, but, um, al dente teasers. Al dente, yeah. Well, ha, ba-boom. <laughs> Thinking about more sort of recent aspects of queer history, in 1993 you published an essay on costume at Mardi Gras called Gay Perspectives, um, In Gay Perspectives, More Essays in Australian Gay Culture. What was it like about writing uh, about gay perspectives in that time? Um, it's really on the cusp of something, yeah. of a change, isn't it, in Australian culture? Yes. You know, there was a, a supportive network at University of Sydney around the Economic History Department. Um, there were some interested people in a place like Canberra and ANU. But what, what that was about was really about, you know, me experiencing these events held in Sydney, either the, not the early but the later at parties and the Mardi Gras parties, and thinking this is a really interesting visual cultural event and how could we write about it? And there is this great tradition of writing about masquerade in the 18th century where people like Terry Castle, mm-hmm. feminist historian had been writing about... Notorious lesbian. Yeah, amazing woman, yes. Uh, had been writing about the transgressive potential of masquerade as a kind of liminal or space in between. And so I tried to map some of that together. It looks a little bit crude now from, you know, 93 to now. What's I do it slightly party? differently now. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, you know, the world's full of acronyms, but it was a <laughs> recreational arts team. And it was a group of creatives around Jack Vigeon and Billy Yip uh, who put on these amazing uh, things that we came to be known as dance parties at places like Paddington Town Hall. So it's sort of a nascent yes. gay kind and of culture. Yeah, yeah they, were, they were not just for gay people, but they were completely uh, gay, queer friendly. Yeah. Um, they included performances from people like Sylvia and the Synthetics, these um, deliberately trashy uh, drag groups that had some links to uh, San Francisco queer. Um, Danny Abu, people like that. And famously, Grace, Grace Jones turns up at one. Yes, I'm glad I witnessed that. Um, Grace Jones came to one, I think it was one of the last rat parties. Um, like all, all club and um, ephemeral events, things run their course. But she was meant to do the midnight show for New Year, and I was very excited to see her. And maybe two in the morning she still hadn't appeared, and then she came on and then she fell, promptly fell off the stage, <laughs> which, you know, she's quite famous for doing. But it was good to witness it close up. Uh, and a historical episode. Yes. You um, bearing witness to. That's right. I, um, in a strange twist, my friend who's formed the big fashion collection used to live across the road from her in New York and he'd watch her get into her limousine to go out at night and it would take her up to two hours to get into the car. So, you know, this is a different pace of time and activity. And so, Peter, what, what was the role of fashion in the rap parties? Oh, it was really important. And it was very much about DIY culture, making things yourself. It was a little bit tacky. It was gaudy, it was sexual, it showed a lot of the body. The young Akira Isagawa was there. Uh, a lot of these great garments survive in the Maz, or Powerhouse, as we used to know it, collection. They've been carefully collected by curators like Linus Jones. Yeah, so how did that work? Like, people were 
collecting these costumes at the time with a view to the future? Uh, they were collected much later, deliberately, I think, for important exhibitions like the 80s and Powerhouse Mass has got a really great tradition of collecting subcultural clothes from all sorts of groups all around and why is it important, the state and the country. Sorry, Peter. Why is it important to collect this kind of, um, I guess, ephemera of our day-to-day lives? Oh, it's really important because it's often in the ephemera and the things that we throw out ourselves when we, when we move house or they get smelly because often they're made of cheap plastics and nylons and things like that. They, sh- they can help us recreate the sense of the feelings, the moods, the visual dynamism of an event in a way that photography can't or other records. Those fashions at the early rat parties, for me, are quite interesting too because a lot of them refer a little bit to 18th century fashion. Not the kind of sparkling sequin that we associate with Grant, you know, dangerous liaisons or something, but these really weird fashions right around the time of the revolution with strange proportions, long striped legs, tights for men, this kind of thing. A lot, often it was about the body, and that was another thing I tried to write about in my first piece of writing about Mardi Gras was what did it mean for so much of the body to be on display, so much nudity for lesbians as well, because lesbians often were topless at these parties. It's kind of sad for me now, actually, that we couldn't actually put a lot of this material on Facebook because they would censor it. You know, we're living in Mm -hmm. such a kind of puritanical age. Mm -hmm. And then we're also very lucky that we had the chroniclers of all of this, like William Yang, who was just so brilliant and was literally always there everywhere. And he's, uh, he's so generous with his archiving, letting, letting people William reproduce Yang? it. Who is William Yang? Who is he? Tell us. William Yang's an um, Asian-Australian from North Queensland who uh, was you know, part of the gay scene in Sydney from the 70s onwards, also chronicled events in Queensland and New South Wales. It's everything from boarding houses and share houses in Bondi to the really big parties. And Yang's gone on to have a very interesting career also as a kind of uh, performance artist with his really interesting monologues about what it is to grow up Chinese, queer and different and a mixed race background from North Queensland and about loss, you know, loss. And he chronicled the, the AIDS crisis as well. Mm. And to find his works and also some of the Rat Party ephemera, how do people access this information, which is often public now, isn't it? Well, I I think things are getting really good in a way. It's fantastic because so many of our big collecting bodies are digitising their collections. So, for example, you could go into the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences database and you can look at the handmade, hand-printed uh tickets for a rap party, which are actually really, really beautiful pieces of visual communication in, in and of themselves. And those tickets, too, tell you a lot about the ethos of the time, the visual sensibility, the technology, even the kind of colours that people liked. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff now that can be found uh, by searching mm. through our collections. And, you know, State Library of New South Wales has got fantastic collections in this area. Margot Riley has built up a really, really important mm. um, gay lesbian archive there. Among, with other people. So the digital curation of this space is, is very active. Yes, it is, and, and also the active collecting. And we're really lucky that we've had those imaginative curators um, forming those collections mm. because in some cases, um, you know, in a place like the National Gallery in Canberra collected Tully, McDermott, who were making kind of... Um, they, made, they made things that were worn at these parties, but they were, they've been framed more as art clothes rather than social history. And that's an interesting distinction between what different types of museums and galleries, libraries can collect. And it's great we've got that full suite. 
Mm. Also community archives like um, Gay and Lesbian Archive in Melbourne. I renovated my flat last year after 20 years and there was so much junk in there. And I found all my dance party tickets from a two-year period from around the Gay Games time. And it turned out that the archive in Melbourne didn't have any of these tickets. And they're actually very interesting to look at, especially when you lay them out and see the way that, oh, this party must have been done on the cheap, and then look at the visual quality of this one. This, this must have had a really good artistic director. Just as yeah. well, they've got a new building to house all your, yeah, uh, yeah, your boxes. Yeah, so that was, that was kind of fun to... um send these things off in the post. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Listeners, you are here on 2SER 107.3 listening to Glam City. This is our 2018 uh, second series. To download the show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Ga- Glam City. Uh, this show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a, a rating. And here we are, uh, we're talking to Peter McNeil from 2SER about all things queer and fashion. And we have been talking about rat parties, but you also uh, have been working on another exhibition called The Unflinching Gaze. Yes, that show's um, just come down in Bathurst Regional Art Gallery. I'm actually going there uh, for the farewell party of its amazing director, Richard Perham. Like all organisations, they rely on the imagination of their directors and their staff. Unflinching Gaze was, uh, was about the male body in photography and it had loans from about 30 organizations a very complicated show and it was interesting because it kind of cut things across time and across theme so there were everything from 19th century photographs there to contemporary photo media by owen leong who looks at what uh what it is to be asian and queer in contemporary society through a very interesting commission he did about the male body in in a kind of buddhistic um scenario and um, the show was really interesting, actually. It was great to work on for, for about two years and talk it through with Richard Perham. Um, I wrote the catalogue with a trans UTS staff member, Christine Dean, who's also an artist. Um, we, we looked at the way, you know, what it means to put the male body on display, whether it's naked soldiers jumping into a, a river to cool off uh, or Warhol's underground scene in 60s New York and also contemporary practice, including some very interesting work by Aboriginal Australian contemporary um, artists. And what was the response like? It's quite a bold move putting on a show about the male body in a regional gallery you would sort of think about superficially. Yes, and although it wasn't a queer show, about 70% of the works uh, had some relationship to queer, because I think simply because um, queer men have a you know, they have a different relationship to their identity, their body, because of the way kind of, kind of socially positioned. Well, um, I think Richard's a brave man. It was his retirement show. So in one sense, it was a bit, let's see what happens. But he's got, so, he's got really great support from the local community, from the mayor, from, also, from the tourism authority. And um, I've, I've seen on Facebook, there have been a few little complaints. Why do, we, why do we have to have political art in the gallery? Why do we do this? But there was no uproar. You know, um, uh, we did some radio up there together. Um, you know, uh, the regional gallery is actually very important spaces where you can actually bring the community with you with, with various social issues. And so it actually, and the show was also very beautiful because Richard's really a great esthete. And I liked it very much because it included very large, valuable photography from important collectors like Dick Kwan in Sydney. From a, There's a guy in... Uh, uh, Florida, who's got one of the biggest collections of male photography in the world, including Australian surf lifesavers of all things. Um, he came out. 
but it also, as well as this, you know, what came to be seen as kind of museum quality photography, it had things that Richard had collected in New York in the 70s, you know, um, postcard size images of the Warhol's factory. Mm. Mm. Do you think something about that? I mean, it's an exhibition of photography and video art, isn't it? And yes. something about that, those mediums which are accessible to people is part of the way, reason it's connecting so well to the community? Yes. Um, also very visually beautiful. Um, a little bit confronting. As I said to Richard, you've actually managed to shock me with a couple of images. It was, <laughs> Hi, Bart. Can we say on air or not? <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting it. subculture that I, I hadn't heard of because I must be so vanilla, which is um, <laughs> uh, there's a small group of people that um, amputate parts of their finger joints. And he had a very, you know, so but Richard had a small, uh, Richard handled it very cleverly. There was an R-rated room where you could go in and you could see, you know, um, there was, you know, some works like that. Um, but I think the fact that I got pushed along was a really good sign. Mm. Mm. Here's another dimension to human existence. Mm. And mm. you were mentioning earlier that, you know, the frustration that some of this sort of material would be banned from Facebook. Mm. Um, yes, Facebook actually took down my post about the exhibition opening. I was so angry at the time. But then, you know, when they threatened to ban you, what are you meant to do? I mean... We're all in their grip. <laughs> you can't set up a rival, really, can you? But, uh, you know, I mean, no. But the, um, in a way, the gallery is an alternate public space for that sort of material to circulate. And it's, it's those public spaces that we used to live in all the time, and mm. they're still there. Yes, and creating, you know, durable records like catalogues, which, you know, go on to live on mm. after um, an exhibition ends. And I think that's where our university role is really important because we often can f- facilitate something like the catalogue or the writing or the durable record in a way that a small community organisation or even a bigger one can't do. So I, that's what I really love doing. I like, you know, working at these different scales, whether it, whether it's working with someone in, in Bangkok on a cultural tourism conference or going to Bathurst and working with a really authentic gallery it's mm. fantastic and um, bringing it back to your own research I mean your work as a as an academic historian is is you know in collaboration with these spaces and with these movements such as um, the history of Mardi Gras and so on but in terms of your own research you're about to publish a new book about macaroni men can you tell us a little bit about that project which is a very long-standing project yes it, it is a long-standing project it's based on my um, PhD work and it's also really benefited from the fact I've been able to travel, thanks to my fantastic job you know, at UTS, and also I've been working in Sweden and Finland, so I've got to see a lot of collections in out-of-the-way out of places. So the book is called uh, Pretty Gentlemen, Macaroni Men and the 18th Century Fashion World. And most people know what dandies are, but these are the guys before the dandies, and to my mind they're just as interesting as the guys who gave us the black suit. So this, uh, I'm going to kind of explore in this book this term that was as popular as hipster or punk in our own time, and which was a name given to very um, extreme, fashionable British men from about 1760 to 90. So a 30-year slice of time, which is, you know, is it a generation, Anna, or a bit longer? Yeah, I think you'd call it a One social a generation. A social generation. I like that. <laughs> I wish I'd used that in the book. <laughs> and it, it weaves together, you know, art, decorative arts, biography, events of the day and it includes everybody from Joseph Banks who was uh, macaroni when he was young to a, bl- a freed black slave known as Subis who used to drive around in a carriage and eventually was hustled off to Bengal India where he started a riding school the famous song uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, is is an attack on the Ameri- badly dressed American troops you know stuck a feather in his cap called it macaroni 
and I've got every everybody from luxury furniture makers to Cosway, the miniature painter, to the king appear in this book. So I'm a very I always wanted the book to be in full color, and I've got 150 color images. I've just seen the advanced copy. It's got a lovely kind of watermelon colored cover, and they hand designed the font for for the frontispiece. So it's you know it's drawing to a conclusion now, and uh, it's based on a lot of years of work in different archives, a private archive in part of Yale University in Connecticut where I love going, which is so far out of the way but so beautiful and tranquil and they've got all this amazing stuff it's like a mini london in connecticut and a lot of the works haven't been reproduced before you know that's really slow laborious this stuff porcelain from switzerland the there's an image uh, about the connection of macaroni the food and the fashionable man because the joke the kind of internal joke is that these um fashionable men didn't even eat english food they ate foreign food they ate macaroni they'd been on the grand tour to italy and it's been really exciting to reproduce some things that um, had to be taken out mm. of the archive and shot. It's also why our job is often laborious and also expensive. And But the, the results are such a payoff, aren't they? Because the book is a stunning piece of visual, um, I don't know, visual material cultural in its own right, as well as being a work yeah, of history. Yeah, well, I hope it tells a... I hope it tells a new story and my, you know, your interesting questions about why fashion, um, you know, it used... People, you know, if old-fashioned fashion histories used to say things like, oh, all young men or all empty-headed young people like fashion. And to me, that was always not good enough as a kind of explanation for what fashion means or what fashion's about. So this book is also a bit of a, a very big pushback about the idea that fashion is facile and also that in all times and places, people just engage with fashion in the same way. It always means something special. Brilliant. Well, unfortunately, we are coming to the end of the show, which means it's time for Glam Slam. I had so many more questions I know. to ask. I mean, what can you do? You could email Peter. I will. You could. Yeah. Um, so, Glam Slam, uh, Anna Clark, what is coming up in your history diary? I am going to go to a couple of Mardi Gras events. The first thing I'm going to is called Out in the Streets. It's a panel. A I know. History I'm panel. hosting it. Ah, <laughs> hang on. I didn't know that. Out in the Streets is a panel um, looking at the history of um, queer history in Australia and in Sydney in particular since uh, 1978, looking at the history of the Mardi Gras, history of queer activism, and it looks amazing. It's going to be at King's Cross Library on Tuesday, the 20th of February. It's free, but you need to RSVP. And co-hosted with the Pride History Group, we should say, in the city of Sydney. Exactly. And um, you can, they've got um, RSVP, you can get details through the Mardi Gras website. Totally. What about you, Peter? Uh, I'm getting really excited about the arrival of Raining Men. It's a great title, isn't it? Especially seeing it was conceived in Los Angeles. The Raining Men, 300 Years of Men's Fashion, which is the biggest exhibition of men's fashion clothing ever assembled in the world. Where is it going to be? It's coming to the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, first week of May. Wow. Uh, I've I had the great privilege of working on it for about three years with Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the collector who put the, the whole thing together, most of it, Martin Karma, who's an amazing person who worked in the ballet, worked with Nureyev in the 60s, mm. came to Australia in the 70s actually when they did that Don Quixote film. Um, he'll be coming out and we're doing a panel talk at Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences um, around you know first week of May, first, second, third of May can have a look on the website. That will be a must-see. What about you, Tamso? What are you up to? 
Oh, God. I mean, um, I'm going to Sissy Ball um, before Mardi Gras, a week before Mardi Gras. You can still get tickets for that. That's at Carriage Works. I think that's going to be a fashion. Um, are you going? That needs to be documented. Yeah, totally. I think I'm going to be actually stuck in Bangkok in the Mardi Gras period, which is kind of sad, but I'll cope. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to go to a cultural tourism conference. You can touch the visual remains. I didn't the check day. the dates properly. I need a better calendar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's... Um, uh, that's just one of the many Mardi Gras related um, things going on across Sydney. So you should check out the Mardi Gras website and also listen back to us because we've got some more content coming on uh, all things history of queer. But for now, we're going to say goodbye. Brings us to the close of Glam City for today. Glam. Sadly. Sadly as ever. Uh, but we'd like you to get in touch with us if you have any ideas you can do that through um, email at glamcity at 2ser.com you can check us out on the 2ser website 2ser.com you can search for us in your favourite podcast app you can message us on Twitter you can find me under at Anna Hope Clark you can probably stalk us as well around UTS if you really want to yeah yeah, that's right you could do some uh, trolling history trolling buy coffee coffee. (laughs) triple shot flat white we'd like to thank a very much Peter McNeil for being our guest today a very distinguished historian and uh, fellow UTS yeah, thank you colleague dum, dum, we'll dum, be dum. back next week we'll be back next week uh, that's it for us glam out <laughs> <laughs>